As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. The inflation fight isn't over. Speaking of CBS over the weekend, joining a chorus of Fed officials pushing back on rate cut speculation in the wake of Jay Powell's dovish outlook. Former New York Fed President Bill Dudley calling Powell's comments a gamble, warning, quote, there's plenty that can go wrong. Powell has repeatedly emphasized that the Fed must finish the job. Yet the more weight he puts on cutting rates to avoid a recession, the greater the risk of falling and failing to control inflation, of markets getting a big and pleasant surprise. One way or another, 2024 promises to be an interesting year. Thanks for teeing that up, Bill. Let's start the conversation there. Just why do you think that is so risky and what on earth happened at the news conference last week? We spoke immediately afterwards. You've had an extra week. What was that, Bill? I think he's been very pleased with how, how the economy has performed. We've had pretty sturdy growth, yet uh, the inflation rate has come down. Uh, so the prospects of a soft landing have gone up. I think that's all really good and positive. What I don't understand is why you'd want to add fuel to the fire and cause financial conditions to ease uh, substantially, which is what he what he provoked last last week. So stocks are up quite a bit, uh, bond yields are down, financial conditions are much more accommodative. The Goldman Sachs Financial Condition Index, for example, is eased by a full percentage point uh, at a time that the economy has been growing at an above trend pace. So to me, it's I worry that the Fed's not going to finish the job. Uh, he's behaving a little bit more like Arthur Burns than he is like Paul Volcker. <laughs> Bill, let's build on that just a touch more. Do you think he's seduced by the prospect of Nen and the soft landing? Do you think that's what sucked him in a little bit? Well, I think that's certainly what he's trying to achieve. And if I was in his shoes, I would do the same. I think there, there's sort of a contest going on right now between how to think about monetary policy. Is policy really tight because real rates are high and inflation is coming down? Or is policy not so tight because financial conditions have eased significantly, and that's providing support to the economy? If you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP now, uh, cast for the fourth quarter, it's now tracking 2.6% after a 5.2% growth rate in the third quarter. So it's not really clear that the economy needs a lot more accommodation to support itself. Bill, do you think the Fed Chair Jay Powell understood what he was going to do to markets? I think that he certainly, I hope he understood that he was coming across with a very optimistic sort of framework for the markets to digest. Um, I think that it's true, as Austin Goolsby said a little bit earlier, uh, that this is a forecast. And so if the forecast doesn't materialize, then the Fed rate cuts that are promised won't materialize either. So the market may be getting a little bit ahead of itself. 
this is how Powell thinks the world is going to evolve. Uh, Powell thinks the Fed's going to be cutting rates in 2024. But it's possible that the economy could be firmer for longer, inflation could be more stubborn, and the rate cuts might not actually turn out to materialize. The reason why I ask that is because Fed Chair Powell had an opportunity to push back against the financial conditions and the easing that we have seen. He had a chance to say, this is problematic and moves counter to our goal of bringing inflation down. He didn't. And you're saying financial conditions still matter. So why do they still matter? Is it becoming inflationary or at least uh, not necessarily restrictive in a way that's problematic for the Fed to see financial conditions easing as much as you've pointed out they have? Well, the big problem here is that if financial conditions ease a lot, that provides impetus to economic growth. If the economy grows faster, the labor market's tighter, wage inflation's higher, and then it's harder to actually achieve your 2% inflation objective. So the question is, does the economy need more fuel? Does the economy need to grow faster? I would say probably no. The labor market's already very, very tight. Wage inflation, as Paul has acknowledged, is above a level consistent with 2% inflation. So I'm not sure why you'd want to put more fuel on the fire. Bill, do you think we've learned enough about the cycle so far, though, to draw conclusions about the contribution of the labor market to overall price pressure and just discount it and say it's not as important as we thought it was? Well, I think it's true that there's a big labor force supply uh, benefit that you got last year. A lot of people rejoined the labor force. So the Fed got sort of had, had its cake and eat it too. They had pretty sturdy growth, but it didn't generate inflation pressure because the labor force expanded uh, to accommodate that growth. Now, the question is, is that going to continue in 2024? Uh, that's a, good, that's a that's a really important question in the economic outlook. Are we going to continue to see that kind of rapid labor force growth that accommodates payroll gains of 150, 175,000, 200,000 a month? Do you see reason to believe that it won't? I think that, that there's some reason to believe that some of the labor force growth we saw last year was a catch-up. Right. You know, basically, you, 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 you opened up immigration again. So you had a surge of immigration, of legal immigration into the U.S. last year. Uh, work from home allowed uh, uh, working age women to, to reenter the labor force. But whether that trend is going to continue at that pace, I would be a bit, bit skeptical about that. There seems to be an acceptance or reacceptance of the concept of transitory at Fed Chair, uh, among uh, the Fed officials, particularly Fed Chair Jay Powell. Are you pushing back on that? Are you saying it's still too early to say that there's still stickier aspects to inflation that they're discounting? Well, I think a lot of the inflation pressure clearly was transitory. A lot of the upward pressure you saw in goods prices was just due to the pandemic and people increasing their demand for goods temporarily during that shutdown period. Now, when you've opened up the economy, the demand for goods falls, and so that all that price pressure goes away. I think the problem on inflation is really more about pressure on resources in the labor market. The labor market is still very, very tight. Uh, wage inflation is still too high. And if the economy grows at an above-trend pace in 2024, that all that pressure on the labor market is going to increase rather than diminish. So the real question I have in my mind is, is, is monetary policy as tight as the, as the Fed thinks it is? And I think the fact that the Fed has pivoted in this way um, by easing financial conditions, that makes monetary policy less restrictive rather than more restrictive going forward. Some people have speculated that the Fed wants to cut rates in the first half of the year and avoid making any moves whatsoever in the second half because of the presidential election. Do you buy into that? No, I don't buy into it. I think at the end of the day, the Fed acts in a completely apolitical manner because they understand that if they start timing rate cuts or rate increases with the, with the political cycle, that politicizes the Fed and puts them in the middle of the 
whole debate. So the best thing the Fed can do is they totally ignore the political cycle and do what they think is best to achieve their dual mandate objectives. Let's just sit on the comments we've heard so far. We've had clarifying remarks from New York Fed President John Williams, your old seat bill, clarifying remarks from Goolsby over the weekend, from Mester this morning in the Financial Times. Bill, how does that work? These speeches, these interviews are scheduled well ahead of time, as we know. Is there someone on the committee the Board of Governors that sends out a message to everyone and says, let's all get on the same page. I need you to say X, Y, Z, Bill. Does that ever happen? So the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes, uh, John Williams, when John Williams speaks, you have to believe that that's been carefully choreographed with the Board of Governors and Jay Powell. When other Fed presidents speak, no, that's not choreographed. That's them operating on their own. So uh, Powell speaks, uh, you want to pay, uh, Powell speaks, you want to pay attention. John Williams speaks, you want to pay attention because they're part of the Troika, the core group that sets monetary policy for the Fed. So I think, look, I think I think people are pushing back a little bit. Uh, they think the market is sort of running away f- from them uh, when when the story isn't really completed yet. I mean, Paul's, Paul's you know, remarks last week were all about how he thinks things are going to evolve. We have to see if they actually evolve in that way uh, to provide the motivation for rate cuts. Hey, Bill, appreciate the update. Great piece this morning. Enjoyed the read. Bill Dudley there of Bloomberg Opinion on the gamble he thinks this Federal Reserve is taking with the grand pivot that was seemingly unofficially announced. I'm really pleased to say that revisiting us around a table is Priya Misra, portfolio manager at JP Morgan Asset Management. Morning, Priya. We were talking last week on Wednesday going into that news conference with Chairman Powell pushback. I was with you. Surely we were going to get pushback from the chairman. We didn't get any. Your point, I think, is an important one. Are we dusting off the 2019 playbook? And for those that might have forgotten, what is the 2019 playbook? So in 2019, what the Fed did was try to, uh, you know, cut rates. They cut rates 75 basis points, really trying to extend the cycle. I think this is the Powell Fed. This is the Fed that says once they get the green light from inflation, what did surprise me was how quickly they're convinced that inflation is actually going to head all the way back down to 2%. They're trying to get that soft landing. They're really, really trying to get that. And if that means that they can normalize policy, that they can get real rates, I think, closer to 1%, one and a quarter, they think they can actually extend the cycle, that we don't get that recession. I think it's a little, you know, a little little bit of a risky move here, because what if inflation does stall? But if you're at two and a half, that's not that far from two. Now, whether it'll work or not, I think that's the trade for six months out. Right now, we're in immaculate disinflation. We're seeing growth slow down, but not to recession levels. And they're hoping that by these preemptive rate cuts that they can actually, uh, uh, you know, get that uh, get that soft landing. Language matters. You didn't say easing. You said normalize. What's the difference? There's a big difference. Not to not not every rate cut is is essentially created equal. I think the Fed right now, the market's hearing the Fed is is cutting to the Fed is easing. I think what they're trying to do is get rates to some sort of neutral level. We don't know what neutral is. Now we'll be debating R star for the next year. You know. Well, What's that level at, at which point uh, policy is essentially accommodative? We're very far from accommodative. In fact, Chair Powell said that last week. He said we're well within restrictive territory. Normalizing, in my mind, is getting rates to, you know, uh, Fed funds to 75, 3%, something in, in that range. Easing would be well, uh, you know, below that. We're talking 1%, 2%. The market right now is pricing in normalizing. So when I hear that too much is getting priced in, no, we're pricing in inflation getting back down close to 2%. Two, two and a half, and uh, you know, growth in that one percent range. 
275 or 3% Fed funds is normalizing. I actually think we still don't price in this chance that the Fed may have to cut well through that because they're trying to extend the cycle. But what if the damage has already been done? What if the lags kick in? I think there's a chance that the Fed may have to cut, you know, well south of that 3% level, which the market's not pricing in, which is why I think there's more room for rates to decline. Why do you think there are so many Fed officials lining up to push back on what we heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell if it is consistent with what they what they hope to do? I think they're really trying to prevent getting bullied by the market to cut all the way down to zero or one percent. Whether that'll work or not, I think the market's the saying... The market's not even bullying them to that degree. They're only billing them 150 basis points. Exactly. But what if the growth data does start to slow down? Then I think the market might say, well, you're going all the way down to zero. And I think the Fed is saying, well, there's a very different bar. There's a different bar to normalizing. We've, we've reached that bar. And then there's a different bar to actually take rates into accommodative territory. It's a very nuanced message, but it's very hard for the market to actually make that, for the, for the Fed to make that point, and secondly, for the market to hear it. So I think the trade for today is the Fed's going to ease. They're trying to get that soft landing. Until we see data that it's not working, it's risk on. Well, but here's my issue. There was a time when we thought that the easing in financial conditions mattered, that it actually would have some sort of stimulative effect on the economy and potentially on inflation. Fed Chair Jay Powell had an opportunity. He had a softball to respond to that, to basically lean into that message. He did not. Do we take a message from that, that they don't care about the easing in financial conditions, or do we take a lesson from all of the other Fed officials that are trying to say it still does matter? So I think financial conditions are always context-dependent, meaning, you know, financial conditions have eased, but so has inflation. Inflation's come back down. Look at three-month moving averages. We're running, you know, south of 2.5%, and the growth data is weakening. I mean, if you, even if you look at payrolls, which is the strongest part of the economy, if I strip out a few sectors, it's actually looking pretty weak. The consumer is levering up, and, uh, you know, we are seeing uh, essentially a pickup in default. So I think if the household sector starting to weaken. The Fed looks at the easing in financial conditions and says, actually, it's appropriate. So I don't think they push back. Now, if we see a reacceleration in growth, absolutely, the Fed's going to push back. If we see inflation stalling out, I think they'll say not so fast. But for now, if growth is slowing down, I think financial conditions matter a lot less. Let's go through the levels. Two year right now, 442. 10 year at the moment, 390. 30 years, just above 4%. How much space is there for yields to fall from here, given everything you've just told us? I mean, it is going to depend on the data. My view is things are slowing. And even though financial conditions are easing, the Fed's talking about rate cuts, it's hard for that to have an impact on the economy that quickly. So I think the 0 to 5 or 7-year part of the curve can absolutely decline a lot more. We should price in, at any point, a 10-15% chance of a recession. You start to put that in, and then you're looking at the 10-year or the five-year closer to 3%. So I think there is room for it to decline. may not be a straight line. We've come a pretty long way very quickly. Two months ago, we were at 5% on tens. We were talking about, you know, the supply narrative. So it's it's moved a long way. I think it can consolidate. But I don't think we're getting much of a backup. So I would use any backup as an opportunity to buy. I think we can have a pretty flat curve around 3% for the next few months. Well, let's talk about the shape of the curve. I'm pleased you went there. You've alluded to this. Just why is this curve still at 
negative 51 two-year versus 10-year. Why aren't we getting that classic end-of-cycle bull statement to come through? What's happening? I think that's, you know, uh, to your question earlier around normalization versus easing, I think the market, that's the part of the market that understands that this Fed is not talking about easing all the way down to zero. The curve will really steepen, I think, when we see signs that we're in, in front of a hard, that a hard landing is in front of us. If we're still in a soft landing, I think we have a very flat curve. There should be some term premium there. But here's my pushback to term premium. There's $6 trillion sitting in money market funds. It's felt, cash has felt good, right? I'm earning more. If the Fed hikes more, well, I'll earn more. Well, now, actually, think about reinvestment risk. As the Fed starts to cut rates, those rates are not going to stay that high. Money is going to move out. And it's not obvious to me that all moves to stocks. When real rates are close to 2%, well, bonds start to look very attractive as well. You said things were slowing. Can we finish there? What is guiding you? Where are you looking across your dashboard right now, looking at various economic indicators? What's guiding your assessment of where this economy is going? Because I've looked at a range forward-looking indicators for a while now have been signaling slowdown and then Q3 happened. So what are you looking at? Right. So, you know, I think Q3, part of why Q3 happened or, or, the, or that strength in the data was real incomes surging. Inflation declined, but wages were still high. Well, that's starting to decline because if, if you look at wage growth, so what I'm looking at is I'm basically looking at the, the household sector. So I'm looking at small business hiring. That sentiment seems to be slowing. Um, you know, and, and I'm looking at the consumer. So at the margin, you're seeing cracks. We still don't know if the cracks will be systemic enough. And can the Fed, this preemptive easing, actually prevent the cracks from de- uh, from deepening? But there are there are cracks in terms of the consumer, uh, you know, leverage, in terms of consumer defaults, delinquencies. So there's signs of trouble. I think it's still too early to say is this hard landing, but we should put in some probability of a hard landing there. Priya, it's good to see you. Always is. Priya Mishra there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's get straight to the conversation. Jay Filoski is fat lonely all year, constructive on the equity market. Now he's got company, tons of company. The founder and principal of TPW Advisory joins us now. Jay, it's wonderful to catch up with you, sir. How good does that external validation feel for you this morning? 
Well, it's been, uh, it makes up for a uh, warm, wet, and uh, windy Monday morning in New York City. That's for sure. So, no, it's, um, you know, as you guys have been talking about, you and Lisa and, and others, uh, markets have rallied. They've rallied right in your face. It's been very difficult to stand aside. It's the classic, as we talked about, year-end rally. You have a gate, a calendar, end of the year. You're underperforming because you have cash. You have to participate. And I read something on uh, in FinTwit over the week where it was like pain levels 10 out of 10, right? So there's a lot of pressure on people to perform uh, in this period. And so there, there's a big chase going on. And as you see, it's uh, continuing now uh, into week eight. Jay, you weren't bullish for the sake of being bullish. So let's talk about your framework, the process. You've been calling for this return to macro stability away from what we've been experiencing over the previous 12, 18, 24 months. Jay, why are you still so convinced by that? And why is that the big outlook for you next year? Yeah, I, th I would say, John, it's actually been three years, right? We've been in three years since COVID of, um, you know, lots of volatility, uh, you know, the inflation spike, the central bank response, uh, all these things have manifested. We've had conflict, we've had climate issues. So it's been a period the last three years of macro volatility. And my view is that we're now exiting that period and we're entering a period of macro stability. All that stuff is in the background. It's all been, it's in the past, it's been priced in, it's been discounted. And going forward, I think the outlook is, is pretty, uh, pretty positive. The Fed is done. We're moving from a rate hike cycle to a rate cutting cycle. We have uh, economies that are doing reasonably well. The U.S. is growing this quarter at 2.5%, probably going to grow 2.5% for the year. Next year, consensus is 1.5%. It's quite likely that that's going to be revised up, as you've talked about people revising up their targets. Europe is bottoming. People love to bash Europe, but European equities have also been up seven weeks in a row. And then you have China, you know, struggling to get going on the traction front, but still growing at 5% per annum. So I think the, the negative outlook on things is just misplaced. It's been revealed to be misplaced by the market reaction. Market knows better than any one of us what is going to happen. And that's why it's forward looking. And that's why you in turn have to be forward looking. And so when we did our 24, our 24 outlook, we had four macro surprises. One of them, the first one, was lower than expected inflation, sooner than expected. That's already playing out, and the market is reacting to that. Another one is a return to macro stability and the unlock that it can present in terms of all that money, well over a trillion dollars that went into money market funds, can now start to come out. And that's why I think, well, the market is surely going to take a pause and surely going to pull back, and that's all good, natural, and healthy. There's so much money that needs to participate that I think that macro stability, the unlock of all that money that went to money market funds, provides a nice cushion so that I don't think you have to worry about a big downdraft uh, in 2024. You've been enthusiastic about non-U.S. stocks for quite a while, including European banks. You were early to this party as well. Now we are seeing that broadening out. How much more conviction do you have now than, say, six months ago that that can continue? Yeah, no, great question, Lisa. And, and look, our view, our, our framework has been very simple. We believe in keeping things simple. Uh, lower inflation leads to lower rates, leads to a weaker dollar, leads to better outperformance outside the U.S. and good performance for commodities. 
our Friday musings last week were, was titled Get Real. And the case we made was to get real means get real assets. And so we're really constructive on emerging markets, uh, both debt and equity. They've been the huge laggard. Uh, no one owns them, completely uh, underpriced, completely dismissed. Um, we see big opportunities in EM around the regionalization of supply chains. This fits right, John, you talked about framework. Our framework is the tripolar world, regional deepening in Asia, Europe, and the Americas. And we're finally starting to see the opportunity to invest in that thesis with emerging markets, Mexico and the Americas, Poland in Europe, Vietnam in Asia, beneficiaries of the regionalization process. And then just to finish on commodities, commodities are the one thing that haven't participated. And yet, what is a big beneficiary of a weaker dollar and lower interest rates? Commodities. And so that's the opportunity, as we see it right here. If you want to buy something now, you buy commodities. You buy oil, you buy copper, you buy gold miners, um, you buy ag. We're exposed across the spectrum. So our two big bets for next year, emerging markets and commodities. Just real quick, can you take a page from Ray Dalio's book and say cash is trash at this point? <laughs> um, uh, you know, cash is definitely uh, a laggard. And that's what I said six months ago and everyone loved it. It's going to be a laggard. So yes, cash, you make 4%. Equities are up 20%. I would rather have the 20%. And so that's what's going to take money out of the money market fund and put it into risk assets as we return to macro stability in 24 and 25, in my view. Very wise, Jay, because when people do call it trash, typically bad things happen. That was the <laughs> right way, Lisa, to answer that question. All right, there we go. That's called diplomacy. Although I will say that his note, I just have to read the way that it began. Wow, one has to admit that external validation, especially from a well-respected source like the Fed, sure feels good. This is someone who is definitely taking a victory lap after after uh, a really stellar year. It's well-deserved. Jay, enjoy the Christmas holiday, sir. It's good to catch up. Jay Pulaski there of TPW on the latest. Let's talk about the other war, the war between Israel and Hamas. Elliot Ackerman joins us now, the US Marine Corps veteran and former White House fellow. Elliot, you've got experience of this. It's valuable to us to lean on it. So thank you for joining us again. The door-to-door combat that we're seeing take place in Gaza, the fog of war, so to speak, and the tragic loss of life, both civilian loss of life and what we saw in the last few days, hostages losing their lives as well. Elliot, can you talk to us about the nature of combat right now and how on earth these things happen? Well, the one thing I think is, is worth emphasizing is uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to overstate how uh, chaotic this type of urban combat is, how difficult it is in certain situations to know exactly what's going on. Um, so obviously, you know, this incident where these three hostages were killed um, is, a, is, is a tragedy. Um, you know, it's important to also just bear in mind the context in which it's happening, in which these Israeli soldiers have now been fighting for weeks, house to house, room to room in Gaza. Um, you know, I fought in the, the Fallujah battle in 2004, and oftentimes, you know, it can be difficult in the heat of the moment to know, you know, who's a friend, who's a foe, even when someone would be appear uh, to be surrendering. Um, I actually have a friend of mine, uh, Dan Malcolm. I, I wear a bracelet for him. I've worn this bracelet for 20 years, and he was on a rooftop, and about 30 minutes before he was shot dead by a sniper, uh, a group of individuals who we thought were civilians 
looked like they were trying to surrender. In fact, they weren't civilians. They were insur insurgents posing as civilians. They were trying to surrender so they could figure out where our positions were. Now, this doesn't excuse what happened in Israel, but I hope it just gives a little bit of a context for the types of conditions these soldiers are dealing with. As you know, Elliot, in the court of public opinion, accidents don't seem to mean anything. It's the loss of life that is important. Elliot, there is pressure building to end this war and quickly. And what we often hear about is time. How much longer can it go on for? I think you draw a really important distinction between time-based policy and condition-based strategy on the ground. Why is that so important, particularly for this conflict and for where this administration in America stands on it? Well, I think we've seen in the past that this administration has gotten itself in, in trouble when it's leaned on times-based conditions. And I'm speaking specifically of Afghanistan, uh, you know, when we, we, we pulled up on, on a calendar that wound up not making sense on the ground. Uh, and I think in the case of Israel, uh, you know, if the objective of the Israeli government, as they've stated, is the destruction of Hamas, if you pull out before that job is done, um, you know, it's basically analogous of, you know, if you had cancer finishing your chemotherapy when you've only got 95 percent of the cancer, it's going to metastasize and grow again. So uh, in my old business, the military business, we had a saying, which is you don't ever want a gentle surgeon. Uh, when you will go in to get these jobs done, you got to get the whole job done. Uh, and you don't necessarily want to do it gently because you can wind up causing more damage than if you just get it done decisively. So uh, and I'd also just point out, it's sort of strange to see this juxtaposition of of needing the speed and needing this finish and demanding that it be finished within days and weeks in Israel, while seeing sort of a willingness to allow the war in Ukraine to kind of just drag in year over year over year. Um, so I think it's important to also keep those two in our minds. Is Lloyd Austin a gentle surgeon? I don't think Lloyd Austin necessarily is a gentle surgeon, but I think what the administration is calling for by uh, saying, let's just finish this in this pressure campaign is basically asking Israel to engage in gentle surgery. Um, I don't think Israel is going to, frankly. Um, I think that there is a level of resolve there that we can't completely appreciate in the United States. But I think there is a danger there that if they were to end this fight right now, um, when it's mostly done, but not all the way done, that this would just wind up being an even worse conflict because they're going to start fighting it again, you know, months or years down the road. Down the road. Elliot, you're one of the, the best voices we could talk to because you can appreciate what it is in a region like that that is engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat and that has been going on for a while. The civilians, and this is sort of one of the big fears, is that the humanitarian crisis is getting incredibly difficult to deal with and you cannot get aid in if there is active combat. Is there any corollary to this moment where there could be some way of assisting civilians while continuing uh, the campaign that you see Israel continuing? Well, you know, I mean, this gets down to the particulars on the ground. You know, what areas are safe? Are there areas that the Israelis feel they've sufficiently cleared out of Hamas fighters where they could allow civilians to come back into those areas and get aid to them? Um, and, you know, hopefully we can start to maybe see something like that uh, where Israel uh, has areas that they feel they can control. Um, but, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, they shouldn't be forced to do that before they're ready to do it. Uh, at the risk of having to go fight this fight all over again because Hamas is a determined adversary. You know, we've seen that. We've seen now the images of these tunnels that are wide enough to drive cars through. You know, Hamas is determined to destroy Israel. Uh, and Israel, I think, appropriately is determined to defend itself and make sure that that can never happen. I mean, if you look at financial markets, it's as if nothing's really happening. I think there is a belief from investors that this conflict will remain contained. And yet there are some cracks in that theory when you start to see 
attacks come from Houthi militants on foreign shipping companies, and foreign shipping companies start to think about pausing the use of the Suez Canal. I just wonder, Elliot, how convinced you are that this particular conflict will be contained to where it's playing out right now? You know, it's less that I'm convinced that the conflict will, in all cases, be contained. And we've seen that it hasn't necessarily been contained. Right? We've seen attacks on U.S. troops in Syria and Iraq uh, from Iranian militants. But I think what probably gives individuals confidence and gives me confidence is that if it starts to really overflow into areas that are problematic, um, the United States and its allies have the capacity to quickly contain the conflict, that the U.S. Navy goes up against uh, some vessels from Houthi rebel groups, the U.S. Navy is going to win. Um, but, you know, we don't want it to get to that point. And I think uh, in addition to what's going on in Israel, the U.S. Department of Defense and the Biden administration is very, very closely watching these other events in the region. Just quickly, Elliot, how much has it changed the game that this is essentially the first war that's been live streamed? Well, I think... Um, game and so much as tactical decisions, things that happen, you know, on the ground are immediately projected out to the entire world and have strategic implications. And we, we saw that recently with the uh, deaths of these three hostages. Um, and, uh, you know, we've seen that, but not only in Israel. I mean, we've also seen that Ukraine is a war um, that uh, has been a social media war, as was Afghanistan. Um, and so really in the last handful of years, the political calculus of war has changed because, as you just put, you know, these wars are live streamed, they're run over social media, and we all experience them. Elliot, thank you for the update. We appreciate it, sir. As always, Elliot Ackman then, leading on his, leading on his personal experience in, in Iraq and elsewhere. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Kevin Book has been covering this, trying to understand the implications, and I'm so pleased to say joins us now, co-founder of Clearview Energy Partners. Kevin, can we just start by trying to understand how important this Red Sea Passage really is for shipping? Lisa, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's uh, 8% of global LNG, about 9% of global oil and petroleum products. So uh, an enormous amount of energy that goes into the world goes through the Red Sea. 
So what is the potential consequence if these attacks do continue? How much more time is required to ship things in alternate routes? How much more energy will be used, uh, oil will be used for those shipping uh, routes? Is, is relatively insignificant compared to the supply impact. There's two aspects to this. The first is the, uh, the additional latency introduced by going through the Suez Canal and then around uh, Africa. Uh, and that, uh, depending on the speed of the ships moving, and they do move uh, somewhere between 10 and 14 knots, uh, you could have anywhere from between uh, uh, 10 days to two, two weeks, even a little longer. Uh, the second is capacity constraints on the Suez Canal itself. Uh, and uh, to some degree, uh, the, the number of ships that move through is one aspect of it. They're also the size of the ships that move through. Uh, the Suez Max uh, tanker size is so-called because it's the maximum size tanker you can move through the Suez Canal. Uh, and obviously the, the limitations in, in fleet capacity can, can introduce uh, additional pinch on supply. Right now, uh, crude traded on the NYMEX is up 2.3%. Is this sort of uh, appropriate in your view? Do you think that we should see an even bigger pop in oil prices just simply because of the supply constraints that could come from prolonged uh, shipping passages? Well, yeah, we thought it was significant when we wrote about it a week ago, and we noted how odd it was that the market wasn't yet pricing it in. Uh, as for the, the magnitude of the increase to, to date, uh, I mean, obviously the numbers I gave you would be staggering if that amount of supply was disabled. Uh, we would see double-digit moves in the oil price on a dollar-per-barrel basis. But uh, a lot of this depends on really the decisions that actors make, and there's a lot of players in this. Uh, questions about whether or not the Saudis, for example, will continue to ship through the Red Sea, uh, and whether or not they believe they're at risk of, of attacks. The, uh, the risk tolerances of other players, and for that matter, the evolution of the task force that the U.S. government is working right now actively to stand up with other players in the region, emulating a similar task force in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, last variable, uh, not to make this more complicated, is the question whether or not the Eisenhower uh, Carrier Strike Group, which moved into position potentially to strike the Houthis, uh, risks a different kind of escalation that could produce reprisals in other parts of the region. Given all of those variables, what's the appropriate price for oil? Well, it, we thought we saw pressure to the upside a week ago. We're seeing it now. We think there's room for more. At this point, what kind of response would be de-escalatory versus escalatory, right? There's this, uh, uh, this group that you said is trying to come together to come up with a way to deter Houthi militants. What are you looking for as a response that could relieve some of the pressure on oil versus the opposite? Well, it really depends on the, the root cause of the problem here. The Houthis seem to be doing something that's fundamentally and conceptually similar to U.S. secondary sanctions. Initially, they started targeting anything with nexus to Israel, Israeli ownership or uh, management of the shipping uh, company or the tanker, uh, or for that matter, just cargoes going into or out of Israel. They've cast the net even more broadly now. Uh, a stand down, some sort of accommodation that they have a narrower focus, uh, that kind of thing might potentially take some pressure off. Uh, the, the maritime uh, task force, uh, to the degree that it can provide security for tankers in the region, might not eliminate the risk premium, but it could potentially keep it from rising. At this point, a lot of people are discounting a lot of the geopolitics, simply saying the U.S. is pumping record amounts of shale. Gasoline prices, on average, in the United States are basically $3 on average. And you can see that uh, across the nation. How much does U.S. production offset a lot of the potential geopolitical headwinds uh, that could cause prices to rise? 
Well, so there's there's two things that are really offsetting. And one is, of course, the prolific production here uh, in Guyana and on Brazil. Uh, you're seeing non-OPEC production surging, and that has buffered, uh, buffered prices. Uh, and, and of course, we can't overlook demand weakness in China. But the other side of that is that the, the supply cushion that you get from spare capacity from, from OPEC producers is usually something else that can come to the rescue. But in this case, that supply cushion is less available because uh, part of that supply could potentially come out through some of the very same choke points that we're discussing today. So for, th for that reason, I think we, we may see uh, more, more risk uh, showing up in, in price perceptions as we go forward. But yeah, we've been sleeping through some very serious potential supply risks for some time, uh, very reassured by production. Well, this is a reason why uh, some people are wondering, what did they get wrong? How much do you think is that the demand side is offset by the increase in electric vehicle use and other alternative uh, sources of energy? Well, so every million electric vehicles on U.S. roads where we drive more with less efficient cars than other parts of the world is only about 30,000 barrels per day of demand destruction. So we're selling more than a million a year. That's not really showing up that much. We see the bigger numbers posting in China. Uh, and now you're getting bigger displacements, but still that's not changing the demand picture. Demand is going ahead, at least in the near term. Uh, there are a lot of folks who would say that maybe the, the predictions of a plateau or even a peak uh, this, this decade are even premature. Uh, so with that in mind, I think we shouldn't discount that there's immense appetite for crude oil out there still and, uh, and liquids generally. And with that, supply risks still very much matter. To put this all together, people have been talking about ranges heading into 2024, uh, ranges that oil could move within, given the need to both uh, not lose money on product producing oil in the U.S. and also the desire for Saudi Arabia to make a certain amount per barrel. What is that range, given the risks and given the supplies that we've seen from the U.S.? Well, the the... The idea that there's sort of a natural eight-handle floor established by fiscal break-evens or other mathematical computations uh, has a little bit, you know, of, of I think, hopefulness to it. Uh, there's two active wars going on right now in energy-producing and consuming areas uh, with risks potentially in Venezuela uh, as well, although they currently seem to have abated. Uh, with that in mind, I think it's, it's a bit odd to look only at supply-demand balances and assume that the world as it is today will be how it is in the coming year. But if you do look at that, you see supply outstripping demand in the first half of the year. Our, our latest look, my colleague Jacques Rousseau looked ahead at it, uh, and it looks like there's, there's still weakness. And with OPEC plus clamping down, the incremental clap, clamp down isn't necessarily enough to, to stem it in the near term. But this is where geopolitics comes in. And always, uh, it's important to remember, there's an alignment of incentives here uh, for Iran and for the, the other Folks who are aligned with Iran, the idea of a higher oil price because of geopolitical risk isn't a bad thing. It's a tailwind. Kevin Book of Clearview Energy, thank you so much for being with us. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.